Chapter 15, Part 1 of The Swiss Family Robinson. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Swiss Family Robinson by Johann R. Wies. Chapter 15, Part 1. At last came the day when Fritz was to make his trial trip with the kayak. Completely equipped in swimming costume, trousers, jacket, and cap, it was most ludicrous to see him cower down in the canoe and puff and blow till he began to swell like the frog in the fable. All trace of his original figure was speedily lost, and shouts of laughter greeted his comical appearance. Even his mother could not resist a smile, although the dress was her invention. I got the other boat out, that my wife might see we were ready to go to his assistance the moment it became necessary. The kayak was launched from a convenient shelving point, and floated lightly on the sea-green ocean mirror. Fritz with his paddles then began to practice all manner of evolutions, darting along with arrowy swiftness, wheeling to the right, then to the left, and at last flinging himself quite on his side, while his mother uttered a shriek of terror, he showed that the tiny craft would neither capsize nor sink. Then, recovering his balance, he sped securely on his further way. Encouraged by our shouts of approbation, he now boldly ventured into the strong current of Jackal River, and was rapidly carried out to sea. This being more than I had bargained for, I lost no time in giving chase in the boat with Ernest and Jack, my wife urging us to greater speed, and declaring that some accident could not fail to happen to that horrid soap-bubble. We soon arrived outside the bay, at the rocks where formerly lay the wreck, and gazed in all directions for signs of the runaway. After a time we saw, at a considerable distance, a faint puff of smoke, followed by the crack of a pistol. Upon this we fired a signal-shot, which was presently answered by another, and, steering in the direction of the sound, we soon heard the boy's cheery halloo. The kayak darted from behind a point of land, and we quickly joined company. "'Come to this rocky beach,' cried Fritz. "'I have something to show you.' With blank amazement we beheld a fine, well-grown young walrus, harpooned and quite dead. "'Did you kill this creature, my dear Fritz?' I exclaimed, looking round in some anxiety, and half expecting to see a naked savage come to claim the prize. "'To be sure, father, don't you see my harpoon? Why do you doubt it?' "'Well, I scarcely know,' replied I, laughing. "'But success so speedy, so unexpected, and so appropriate to an amateur Greenlander, took me by surprise. I congratulate you, my boy. But I must tell you that you have alarmed us by making this long trip. You should not have gone out of the bay. I left your mother in grievous trouble.' Indeed, father, I had no idea of passing out of sight, but once in the current I was carried along, and could not help myself. Then I came on a herd of walruses, and I did so long to make a prize of one that I forgot everything else, and made chase after them, when beyond the influence of the current, until I got near enough to harpoon this fine fellow. He swam more slowly, and I struck him a second time. Then he sought refuge among these rocks, and expired. I landed and scrambled to where he lay, but I took care to give him the contents of my pistol before going close up, having a salutary recollection of the big serpent's parting fling at you, Jack. 
"'You ran a very great risk,' said I. "'The walrus is an inoffensive creature, but when attacked and wounded, it often becomes furious, and, turning upon its pursuer, can destroy with its long tusks a strongly built whale-boat.' However, thank God for your safety. I value that above a thousand such creatures. Now, what's to be done with him? He must be quite fourteen feet long, although not full grown. I am very glad you followed me, father, said Fritz, but our united strength will not remove this prodigious weight from among these rocks. Only do let me carry away the head with those grand snow-white tusks. I should so like to fasten it on the prow of the kayak, and name it the seahorse. "'We must certainly carry away the beautiful ivory tusks,' said I, "'but make haste. The air feels so excessively close and sultry. I think a storm is brewing.' "'But the head, the head! We must have the whole head!' cried Jack. "'Just think how splendid it will look on the kayak!' "'And how splendid it will smell, too, when it begins to putrefy,' added Ernest. "'What a treat for the steersman!' "'Oh, we will prepare for that,' said Fritz. "'It shall be soaked and cleaned and dried "'until it is as hard as a wooden model. "'It shall not offend your delicate nose in the least, Ernest.' "'I supposed the walrus to be an animal peculiar to the Arctic regions,' remarked Ernest. "'And so it is,' I replied, "'though they may occasionally be seen elsewhere. "'These may have wandered from the Antarctic seas.' I know that on the eastern coast of Africa is found a smaller species of walrus, called the dugong. It has long incisor teeth, but not tusks, and certainly resembles a seal, rather than a walrus. While thus speaking, we were actively engaged in the decapitation of the walrus, and in cutting off long strips of its skin. This took some time, as we had not the proper implements, and Fritz remarked that in future the kayak must be provided with a hunting knife and a hatchet, adding that he should like to have a small compass in a box, with a glass top, fixed in front of the hole where the steersman sits. I saw the necessity of this, and I promised it should be done. Our work being accomplished, we were ready to go, and I proposed to take Fritz and the canoe on board our boat, so that we might all arrive together, but I yielded to his earnest wish to return alone as he came. He longed to act as our avant-courier, and announce our approach to his mother. So he was soon skimming away over the surface of the water, while we followed at a slower rate. Black clouds, meanwhile, gathered thick and fast around us, and a tremendous storm came on. Fritz was out of sight, and beyond our reach. We buckled on the swimming belts, and firmly lashed ourselves to the boat, so that we might not be washed overboard by the towering seas which broke over it. The horizon was shrouded in darkness, fearful gusts of wind lashed the ocean into foam, rain descended in torrents, while livid lightning glared athwart the gloom. Both my boys faced the danger nobly, and my feelings of alarm were mingled with hope on finding how well the boat behaved. The tempest swept on its way, and the sky began to clear as suddenly as it had been overcast, yet the stormy waves continued for a long time to threaten our frail bark with destruction, in spite of its buoyancy and steadiness. Yet I never lost hope for ourselves. All my fears were for Fritz. In fact, I gave him up for lost, and my whole agonized heart arose in prayer for strength to say, "'Thy will be done.' At last we rounded the point, and once more entering Safety Bay, quickly drew near the little harbour. 
What was our surprise, our overwhelming delight, when there we saw the mother with Fritz, as well as her little boy, on their knees in prayer so earnest for our deliverance, that our approach was unperceived, until with cries of joy we attracted their notice. Then indeed ensued a happy meeting, and we gave thanks together for the mercy which had spared our lives. Returning joyfully to Rockburg, we changed our drenched garments for warm dry clothes, and, seated at a comfortable meal, considered and described at our ease the perils of the storm. Afterward the head of the walrus was conveyed to our workshop, where it underwent such a skilful and thorough process of cleaning, embalming, and drying, that ere long it was actually fixed on the prow of the kayak, and a most imposing appearance it presented. The strips of hide, when well tanned and prepared, made valuable leather. Much damage had been done by the late storm. The heavy rain had flooded all the streams, and injured crops which should have been housed before the regular rainy season. The bridge over Jackal River was partly broken down, and the water tanks and pipes all needed repair. So our time was much occupied in restoring things to order. On going to work one day near the cascade, we found a great number of dark red berries scattered on the ground. They were about the size of ordinary hazelnuts, with small leafy coronets at the tip. The boys thought them so inviting that they tasted them at once, but angry exclamations and much spitting and spluttering followed the experiment. Even Knips rejected them, and they would have been cast aside with contempt had not the smell induced me to examine them. I decided that this was the fruit of the clove. Some plants were immediately set in the nursery garden, and my wife was pleased to have this excellent spice wherewith to flavor her boiled rice and other dishes, in lieu of pepper, a very welcome variety to every one. Having a good supply of clay, brought from the bed near Falconhurst, I proposed to use it for making aqueducts, and, observing how much the recent rain had promoted the growth of our young corn, I determined to irrigate the fields with the drainage from our crushing mill. The fishing season was again successful. Large takes of salmon, sturgeon, and herring rewarded our annual exertions, and our storeroom again assumed a well-stocked appearance. Much as I wished that we could obtain a constant supply of these fish fresh, I was obliged to reject the naive proposal from Jack that we should tether a shoal of salmon by the gills to the bottom of the bay, as we had secured the turtles. Many quiet, uneventful days passed by, and I perceived that the boys, wearied by the routine of farm work at Rockburg, were longing for a cruise in the yacht, or an expedition into the woods, which would refresh both mind and body. "'Father,' said Fritz at length, "'we want a quantity of hurdles, and have scarcely any more bamboos of which to make them. Had we not better get a supply from Woodlands? And you said, too, the other day that you wished you had some more of the fine clay. We might visit the gap at the same time.' I had really no objection to propose, and it was shortly afterward settled that Fritz, Jack, and Franz should start together, and that Ernest, who had no great desire to accompany his brothers, should remain with his mother and me, and assist in the construction of a sugar-mill, the erection of which I had long contemplated. Before they started, Fritz begged some bear's meat from the mother, to make pemmican. "'And what may pemmican be?' she asked. 
It is a food carried by the fur traders of North America on their long journeys through the wild country they traverse, and consists of bear or deer's flesh, first cooked and then pounded or ground to powder. It is very portable and nourishing. His mother consented to humor him, as she said, although without much faith in the value of the preparation, and in the course of two days a stock of pemmican sufficient for a polar expedition was fabricated by our enthusiastic son. They were ready to start when I observed Jack quietly slip a basket, containing several pigeons, under the packages in the cart. Oh, thought I, the little fellow has his doubts about that pemmican, and thinks a tough old pigeon would be preferable. The weather was exquisite, and, with exhortations to prudence and caution from both me and their mother, the three lads started in the very highest spirits. Storm and Grumble, as usual, drew the cart, and were ridden by Fritz and Franz, while Hurry carried Jack swiftly across the bridge in advance of them, followed by Floss and Bruno, barking at his heels. The sugar-mill occupied us for several days, and was made so much like our other mills that I need not now describe it. On the evening of the first day, as we sat resting in the porch at Rockburg, we naturally talked of the absentees, wondering and guessing what they might be about. Ernest looked rather mysterious, and hinted that he might have news of them next morning. Just then a bird alighted on the dovecot and entered. I could not see, in the failing light, whether it was one of our own pigeons or an intruder. Ernest started up, and said he would see that all was right. In a few minutes he returned with a scrap of paper in his hand. "'News, father! The very latest news by pigeon-post, mother!' "'Well done, boys! What a capital idea!' said I, and, taking the note, I read, "'Dearest parents and Ernest, a brute of a hyena has killed a ram and two lambs. The dogs seized it. Franz shot it. It is dead and skinned. The pemmican isn't worth much, but we are all right. Love to all. Fritz. Woodlands. 15th instant.' "'A true hunter's letter!' laughed I. "'But what exciting news! When does the next post come in, Ernest?' "'To-night, I hope,' said he, while his mother sighed, and doubted the value of such glimpses into scenes of danger through which her sons were passing, declaring she would much rather wait and hear all about it when she had them safe home again. Thus the winged letter-carriers kept us informed from day to day of the outline of adventures which were afterward more fully described. On approaching the farm at Woodlands, the boys were startled by hearing, as they thought, human laughter, repeated again and again, while, to their astonishment, the oxen testified the great uneasiness, the dogs growled and drew close to their masters, and the ostrich fairly bolted with Jack into the rice-swamp. The laughter continued, and the beasts became unmanageable. "'Something is very far wrong,' cried Fritz. "'I cannot leave the animals, but while I unharness them, do you, Franz, take the dogs, and advance cautiously to see what is the matter.' Without a moment's hesitation, Franz made his way among the bushes with his gun, closely followed by the dogs, until, through an opening in the thicket, he could see, at a distance of about forty paces, an enormous hyena, in the most wonderful state of excitement, dancing round a lamb just killed, 
and uttering, from time to time, the ghastly hysterical laughter which had pealed through the forest. The beast kept running backward and forward, rising on its hind legs, and then rapidly whirling round and round, nodding its head, and going through most frantic and ludicrous antics. Franz kept his presence of mind very well, for he watched till, calming down, the hyena began with horrid growls to tear its prey, and then, firing steadily both barrels, he broke its foreleg and wounded it in the breast. Meanwhile Fritz, having unyoked the oxen and secured them to trees, hurried to his brother's assistance. The dogs and the dying hyena were by this time engaged in mortal strife, but the latter, although it severely wounded both Floss and Bruno, speedily succumbed, and was dead when the boys reached the spot. They raised a shout of triumph which guided Jack to the scene of action, and their first care was for the dogs, whose wounds they dressed before minutely examining the hyena. It was as large as a wild boar, long stiff bristles formed a mane on its neck, its colour was grey marked with black, the teeth and jaws were of extraordinary strength, the thighs muscular and sinewy, the claws remarkably strong and sharp altogether. But for his wounds he would certainly have been more than a match for the dogs. After unloading the cart at the farm, the boys returned for the carcass of the tiger-wolf, as it is sometimes called, and occupied themselves in skinning it during the remainder of the day, when, after dispatching the carrier-pigeon to Rockburg, they retired to rest on their bearskin rugs, to dream of adventures past and future. The following day they devised no less a scheme than to survey the shores of Wood Lake, and place marks wherever the surrounding marsh was practicable and might be crossed either to reach the water or leave it. Fritz in the kayak, and the boys on shore, carefully examined the ground together, and when they found firm footing to the water's edge, the spot was indicated by planting a tall bamboo, bearing on high a bundle of reeds and branches. They succeeded in capturing three young black swans, after considerable resistance from the old ones. They were afterward brought to Rockburg, and detained as ornaments to Safety Bay. Presently a beautiful heron thrust his long neck from among the reeds, to ascertain what all the noise on the lake was about. Before he could satisfy his curiosity, Fritz unhooded his eagle, and though vainly he flapped and struggled, his legs and wings were gently but firmly bound, and he had to own himself vanquished, and submit to the inspection of his delighted captors. It was their turn to be alarmed next, for a large, powerful animal came puffing, with a curious whistling sound, through the dense thicket of reeds, passing close by and sorely discomposing them by its sudden appearance. It was out of sight immediately, before they could summon the dogs, and from their description it must have been a taper, the colour dark brown, and in form resembling a young rhinoceros, but with no horn on the nose, and the upper lip prolonged into a trunk something like that of an elephant on a smaller scale. It is a gentle creature, but when attacked becomes a fierce opponent, and can wound dogs dangerously with its powerful teeth. The taper can swim and dive with perfect ease, and abounds in the densely wooded swamps and rivers of tropical America. Fritz in his kayak followed for a time the direction in which the taper proceeded, but saw no more of it. 
End of chapter 15, part 1. Read on July 31st, 2009, in San Diego, California.